If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. We've been talking about Dwarka, the fabled city, the golden city of Lord Krishna in India for a few weeks. This week, we actually go to India and see it firsthand with uh, a research investigator and, and author uh, who's written a number of articles on Dwarka, what happened to this golden city, and why it's underwater. Uh, that's the feature for this week. We're also going to hear from author Bruce Fenton on the latest discoveries of uh, different hominins in China and Australia that really throws a wrench in the out-of-Africa theory uh, of human evolution. And Adam Young will present some new streaming media that you can look at in the comfort of your home. All this and the latest info around the world here on Earth Ancients. How you doing? Welcome to Earth Ancients. I'm your host, Cliff Dunning. I hope you're doing well. Hey, I'm all packed. I leave on uh, I leave on the 15th, uh, and I fly into Mexico, uh, Mareda, and I am looking forward to having a heck of a great time. <laughs> I'm looking forward to really enjoying not only the ruins, but uh, just the environment in Mexico, and so I, need a, I do need a vacation. Um, We'll be taking notes. Uh, remember, I am going to be uh, videotaping the climbs on a number of pyramids that we encounter. Uh, I am going to try to get permission uh, to climb the Pyramid of the Magician at Ushmo. Uh, I'm going to have uh, a couple of heavy hitters with me. It's probably going to happen. I have never, I have never had a chance to climb that pyramid, uh, because in the late uh, 1990s, they basically uh, closed it off. Uh, they felt that the, uh, the structure itself could not support people going up and down. And uh, to my surprise, in 1996, uh, which was the last 
the first time, the second time I was there, uh, I was about to climb that pyramid and they basically placed a guard out in front and said, no more climbing, sorry. Uh, basically what you have to do when you get to these places now is you give them a couple bucks. You get there early, you give them a couple bucks. Uh, the Pyramid of, Mag- of the Magician is just outstanding. It's my favorite pyramid of all the pyramids simply because it an, has an oval base. Uh, and it's uh, a three-part pyramid. And what that means is that uh, there is an early, very early, uh, small temple within the pyramid. And then they built a second pyramid a few hundred years later. And then the newest pyramid is probably about a thousand years old. So the earliest pyramid, they guess at 2000, but it, I, I feel that it's probably significantly older simply because these pyramids are built over telluric fields. They're, uh, they're uh, underneath ley lines. Uh, we haven't gotten a scan from uh, that pyramid. They haven't scanned it yet, but my guess is if they do scan it, it's probably uh, under a river uh, or over the top of a cenote. It's funny because we do have the sc- scanning technology to detect uh, telluric fields, these uh, energetic fields that pulse up. Um, the research investigator, John Burke, did that at Chichen Itza. And because of his findings, NASA has been there a number of times, and uh, the National Institute of Archaeology and History is there, the INAH, which, which is the uh, archaeological body from Mexico City. But at Ushmol, uh, we don't have that knowledge, and, and it's my guess that it's probably going on there. Uh, we're getting, uh, you, you get a, a sense of it when you stand by those pyramids. You can feel a little vibration. And it's like, the only way I can describe the sense, the feeling, is it's like a, sl- it's like a, uh, a real light current, electrical current running through your body. You can kind of feel it if you, st- if you close your eyes. <laughs> and that's why I always have field notes. Uh, I laugh because it's really, it, it, it's fun to see people experience it because their eyes will like go, what? Oh my God, there is an energy here. <laughs> so, uh, and I have a blast uh, taking people to these pyramids and everybody who goes on these tours, we, we make sure everybody is able to climb the pyramids and we have people that help and uh, it's not that difficult. It looks difficult, but it's not. And, uh, and, and I'll be recording everybody uh, who does climb and we'll also record a couple of places we go to. But um, Ushmal is the first stop for me. I'll be going with a, with a small group, including some uh, uh, ranking people there who can probably open some doors. I'm not going to name names, uh, but I would love to climb the Pyramid of the Magician, and you can see me climb it. And, and when I get to the top, uh, I will uh, videotape some of the decorations and some of the relief sculptures that are on this uh, entranceway into the interior of the upper chambers. It is a beautiful, beautiful pyramid, and it's, it's always been my favorite. Now, that being said, I do provide everybody on the tour with field notes and those are notes of the uh, lane uh, archaeology uh, the structures at each location we go to and so that gives people a heads up of what they can see but i also recently found a fascinating uh, 
scan that was done of Chichen Itza. And about a year ago, they discovered a number of uh, canals uh, that connect different buildings to the main pyramid. Now, we do know now that the uh, El Castillo, the, the castle, the main pyramid at Chichen Itza, sits on top of a river and a cenote. What we didn't know is that there is these unusual chambers, these canals that connect main pyramid to, we don't know where. We, we do know they run into some other buildings, some smaller pyramids. But why? Why did, why did they create these? Well, my belief is that these are uh, devices of some kind. They, they generate some form of low-frequency energy. How the ancient Maya used this, we don't know. But there's a similar layout, a similar design, engineering design at uh, Palenque, uh, the Pyramid of the Inscriptions, where uh, Pakal, the King Pakal, is, uh, is uh, buried. But there's uh, other uh, locations at uh, Koba, at uh, a number of other locations that uh, have large and small pyramids. And we do know, and from my research, we do know they're everywhere at uh, Teotihuacan in Mexico, uh, Mexico City, just north of Mexico City. Um, And these are devices uh, that probably delivered a tremendous amount of energy. It's my belief that Teotihuacan was a power station of some kind, a powered I don't know. I, I don't want to get into it right now, but I'm I'm writing about this right now. And, and my research on the smaller pyramids at Teotihuacan, uh, the smaller uh, pyramid called uh, the Kukulakan, Pyramid of the Serpent, has all the workings of some kind of uh, delivery system to deliver power. And there was a combustion system inside underneath the pyramid that they discovered huge amounts of water, uh, were delivered in there. Uh, we have e- evidence from the uh, watermarks uh, in the canals. Uh, and also certain types of chemicals were also processed and uh, some reaction happened in this chamber underneath these pyramids, underneath this pyramid of the uh, serpent, and it was delivered in some capacity. It's just beyond us. It's so advanced, it's just beyond us. And as we develop scanning technology, uh, the more we'll find out how these things work. But the other, the other great news for those of, of us, uh, those of you who are traveling to uh, traveling with me to Chichen Itza on this tour is we're going to get a chance to climb that pyramid. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and they closed that off about five years ago. It used to be a regular uh, part of people's travels to Chichen Itza the best-known uh, ruin of the Mayan culture, uh, was to, ch- to climb the, um, the pyramid uh, El Castillo, the castle. And uh, I, I'm making arrangements for people to do that. I will film that. That is a challenge to climb simply because it's such a steep angle. It's more than, I think it's about 45 degrees. They make it a little easy. They put a rope uh, and they secure it from the top pier- uh, top column down so you can kind of use the rope to, to to uh, climb up, but um, I'm that's going to be a blast, uh, and you'll hear all about it on the videos that I shoot and uh, get a, a chance to be up close and personal uh, to the experience that uh, that I and the uh, tour, tour group will have as we venture through 
not only El Castillo, but uh, we're going to go to Ekbalam, Koba. I, I mentioned Ushmol. And then we'll do the Puk Trail. Puk meaning the style of buildings that are on the uh, Gulf side of the uh, uh, Yucatan Peninsula. We're going to see Sail, Koba. Uh, and we're even going to take another trip down to uh, Edzna, which is in Campeche, uh, the uh, state just south of Yucatan. And that place is phenomenal. So I'm going to uh, uh, post most of these on the Facebook page. But if you're not into Facebook, go to earthancients.com and uh, check it out. I think you'll find some of these buildings quite unique. And if you can, uh, next time, next year, come out and join me. Uh, we try to do it in the fall. Try to head out to Yucatan in the fall and, and visit these places. So it's vacation time, and it's fun time to be down there for me, and uh, I need to get away. I uh, just am dragging right now. So fun time, fun times ahead. I also want to mention that uh, all of the tours are on earthancients.com. We just posted the Egyptian tour. It's uh, the, the itinerary on earthancients.com. Go to Earth Ancients and go to Tours. And the Egyptian tour will be with uh, Mohammed Imbriam, uh, who's the archaeologist. He's going to be on the program probably in early December to talk about some new areas that are going to be open to us. The tour uh, is October 3rd through the 13th, 2019. We're about a quarter way full. We're only going to take 30 people. We uh, uh, People are, are, are filling out their forms, getting their stuff in. The new uh, itinerary has more details if you're interested in coming with us. Uh, it shows you where we're going to go. It's very private. We're going to have access to uh, buildings and structures and, and artifacts that nobody uh, on other tours will get uh, access to simply because Mohammed is part of the group there and he knows uh, the uh, director of antiquities and a lot of the other people that are part of the functions of that uh, region of the Giza Plateau of Egypt. So check that out. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some upcoming tours. Well, we're getting into the end of the year, but we have designed, we have um, put together a couple of excellent tours. And the first tour of the year is called Spirit Journey into the Orion Zone. Uh, it's May 17th through the 20th, uh, and it focuses on uh, some of the most well-known ancient native ruins uh, in places like uh, Arizona. We're talking about Chaco Canyon. Uh, we're talking about Aztec ruins. Uh, we are talking about places that are very unique, that have uh, where we have standing ruins uh, that have been protected in some of the most cherished areas in the country. Uh, we're going to have uh, a number of natives with us. We're going to have Hopi, a Hopi guide for most of it. We're going to have a Zuni elder. And we're uh, happy to have Gary A. David, who's actually written a tremendous amount about uh, the Orion connection, the, the way that these native ruins are aligned uh, to celestial uh, bodies and Gary is eloquent in his writing about this. In fact, we have Gary on with us uh, to talk a little bit about his part in this tour. Gary, how you doing? 
Good. I'm great, Cliff. How are you? I'm good. So, hey, talk a little bit about the physical experience. We're going to actually be walking through Chaco Canyon and some of these other ruins, aren't we? Chaco is the largest group of ruins in the Southwest. Okay. And, uh, you know, Pueblo Bonito, for instance, was the largest structure until 1882 in America Mm -hmm. when a larger apartment building was built in New York City. So this is amazing, like 600 to 800 rooms, uh, you know, uh, numerous uh, great kivas, uh, you know, a road system that was immense going up uh, 40 miles to the north and 40 miles to the south. So, you know, it was a major city. It was, uh, you know, the the heart of the... uh, of the world, basically, for that culture yeah. in about 1,000 A.D. Now, one of so, the things I've, know, heard, I've heard about is that that area that we're going to be in was a major migration uh, spot, almost like a, a walkway from Central mm-hmm. America up and through the Amer- uh, uh, North America, right? Oh, yeah. It, it drew, uh, you know, native tribes from the, the, the Maya came up, up that way, and, you know, we found... Um, Mayan uh, artifacts in Chaco Canyon, uh, macaw right. feathers. Macaw you know, feathers, uh, that, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, even chocolate. We found uh, traces of chocolate in Chaco Canyon that came from, from the Yucatan region and, wow. you know, the south. So, you know, uh, they had a, a vibrant trade network um, between the Maya and, well, you know, the, the Pueblo people, which include the Hopi. And, you know, we're going to have a Hopi guide. Uh, Bertram Sabadawa from uh, the old Arrivey on Third Mesa. He's going to come with us, and he's well versed in his culture, of course. And right. uh, you know, he he can give it to us from the uh, the perspective of of a Hopi how the Hopi uh, actually uh, approached this site. Right. I'm going to, you know, I'm I'm a scholar of the of the Hopi. I've I've been working for over 20 years writing books about the Hopi and my experience on the right. Hopi reservation. Cool. And so, you know, I'm going to be talking about the, the, the stars and how they relate to these different sites we're going to. Like, for instance, Chaco Canyon corresponds to the star Sirius, mm-hmm. uh, the lar- you know, the, the largest grouping of ruins in the southwest uh, corresponds to the brightest star in the heavens. So it's just amazing uh, template that was laid out on the desert. And we'll, we'll be able to, to go to these ruins. And they're not really ruins because... Um, the, the ancestors are are still present. Uh, the spirits of the ancestors are present there. So they're 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 not considered ruins per se. They they are actually abandoned physically, but um, spiritually they're still very much alive. And, right. Uh, Native, now, Native people come to uh, do ceremonies there right. to these days. So. We we just posted the uh, entire itinerary. You can go to uh, earthancients.com. If you go to the top, look under tours, you can see the banner that we have, Spirit Journey into the Orion Zone in uh, May 17th. This is um, really one of the most intimate uh, tours that we have done simply because we have the Native uh, experts, the Native uh, people, the interpreters with us to not only look at these ruins, but also we're going to see petroglyphs and other uh, wall carvings as well. So this is a, exactly. this is a very, very cool uh, chance. We're only going to take a handful of people. I think our max is 
going to be 25. Might push it to 30, but uh, get on board. And by the way, we have an early bird special. Uh, if you uh, uh, want to get 100 bucks off, you can type in Earth Ancients to the registration, uh, and it's only good until the 18th of December. Punch that in, and you get a hundred bucks off. It's right. a good, good way to start. So, uh, really, and you know, not only not only Chaco Canyon, but uh, you know, a lot of people uh, talk about the cliff dwellings. We're going to go up to southwestern Colorado and see the largest grouping of cliff dwellings in the southwest, and that's a totally different experience. But it's it's just just amazing to see these these uh, these ruins, these adobe pueblos built underneath these cliffs. They're just astounding what what they have done so, so you can you know, actually go up into those the, now gary can you actually oh climb, yeah yeah climb? you can go in into them and go into the kivas and oh, you know wow. we're gonna be doing that and uh you know there uh, there's a lot of kiva activity that we'll, we'll talk about the kiva and and what happens on the summer solstice and uh, we, we were there last summer last summer and to uh, witness uh, just an amazing uh, archaeoastronomical phenomenon that's uh, just just uh, blew us all away when we were there. So, Very cool. um, you know that that we can talk about what happens in in, uh, in Chaco Canyon, and we're going up to a, a reconstructed Great Kiva. They've so you can actually go in this structure and see what it was like when it was functioning in a thousand A.D. at Aztec ruins. So that has nothing to do with the Aztec, but. Um, this, that's north of Chaco Canyon in New Mexico. And you can actually get a sense of what it was actually like uh, when it was uh, being used as, as a ceremonial site, a, a, a sacred ceremonial area that, uh, oh. that pe- people from, you know, like you say, from South America came through and from the Maya territory. So it's, it's going to be an amazing tour. So I'm looking forward to uh, to uh, what we have to say about this and uh, what we can experience. Okay, cool. So again, it's uh, Spirit Journey into the Orion Zone, May 17th to the 20th. The entire itinerary is up on earthancients.com. Come on out. Hey, I'll be there, and uh, it's going to be... <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it. I haven't seen those areas. It's kind of been on my bucket list for a couple of years. So, hey, right. Gary, thanks, man, and uh, we'll, thanks, we'll, uh, we'll touch good, base. Good talking with you. Yeah. Earth Ancients is supported by your subscriptions, and uh, we really appreciate uh, your subscriptions on Patreon. It really keeps uh, things flowing. I'm in the process of trying to get a a new intern. I've been talking about this other podcast now for almost six months, and I can't get it off the ground until I get some more help. So it is going to be uh, important to, to launch this, and the only way we can do it is with your support through Patreon for as little as five bucks, you can uh, support each month with your subscription. And uh, not only do you support Earth Ancients and the other podcasts that we're developing, but hey, we give you a whole bunch of other stuff on the uh, Patreon uh, page. There are ebooks that you can download, there are uh, a number of articles and galleries. There's even the theme music from uh, the start of the show, which is called Atlantis. And uh, this is what we're, we've used for years. So you can download the entire um, audio of that uh, of that uh, piece of music. So, anyhow, go to Patreon p a t r e o n dot com 
forward slash Earth Ancients and uh, be a subscriber. Really appreciate it. Hey, as a reminder, I hope each of you have a, a wonderful Thanksgiving. It is coming up and uh, have a chance to be with your families and friends and uh, celebrate Thanksgiving. So happy holidays. Okay, here's today's program. I hope you enjoy it. chance to check in with Bruce uh, Fenton. We've had Bruce on uh, before. Uh, he is the author of The Forgotten Exodus, The Into Africa Theory of Human Evolution. That was a pretty eye-opening book simply because he revealed that hominins uh, did not necessarily come out of Africa. They've come out of other parts of the world, uh, parts of Australia. Now the Chinese believe that they have a hominin that is, is about as old as the uh, humanoids that have been found in Africa. And uh, so uh, I, I want to have Bruce back simply because the hominin stories have been coming up in the news in the last few months. And we want to check in to see what he's up to. So, hey, Bruce, how you doing, man? Hi, Cliff. I'm doing really well. And um, yeah, I'm really, really glad to be back on and have a chance to yeah, overview a few of the stories that have come up and that relate to my research. Yeah, uh, absolutely. You're right that there's been quite a few, hasn't there? It's been a flow. Quite a few new, still. new. I mean, even uh, uh, you know, in Europe, they're finding some new bones here and there. But uh, hey, before we get into what's happening, you're in uh, Spain now. How how is Spain? What do you think of the uh, the culture there? Uh, very different to England. You know, people sitting out in the evening in the evening heat. You know, talking yeah. to each other. Something the English have stopped doing long ago. Sitting out oh. talking to your neighbour. Um, and obviously, yeah, great wine, great food, uh, very different to, to what I'm used to, to be honest. Yeah. It's... Yeah. <laughs> so, so they do have good wine there. I heard my uh, friends have been, I have, that's one place I haven't been to yet is, is Spain, but it, it looks like a really exotic, wonderful place. And the food is probably just amazing. Yeah, absolutely. And I've discovered clips. Uh, there's a site about Three hours to the south of me towards Malaga, um, there's some ancient megalithic burials there that are around 5,000 or so years old. Apparently some of the most uh, sort of astonishing megalithic burial sites in Europe. So I didn't wow. know that until I got here. So maybe you've got another reason to come down to the south of Spain there. We can maybe <laughs> check out the I'd the love megalithic. to do a tour there. And uh, uh, we know uh, Richard Casero lives in, uh, in Spain, and he has found a lot of... Uh, megalithic stones and, and and structures there so there is an ancient mm -hmm. history in that part of the world but hey let's talk about Absolutely. this follow-up the forgotten exodus now you're working on a, a follow-up based on some new research tell us a little bit about that yeah absolutely and any readers of my first book will know that i kind of leave a little hook there saying that you know i'll be covering the into america story separately um and that's what i've been working on so i've been keeping an eye on the news as well following up on a few releases that have come out that relate to the americas okay. um essentially my argument is that these early hominins made their way into the americas probably 
you know, 100,000 years ago. I mean, you'll know the, there was a story recently about the um, the broken mammoth bones, and they think the site was around 100,000 years old or so. And that was up in North bones? America. That, that's in San Diego. That's 130,000. Yeah, yeah. 130,000, right. yeah. Yeah, so exactly. So that that's part of the story. You know, I've, I agree with the authors of that, that there is a very, very strong chance that you've got pre, you know, modern humans, some sort of early hominids, could be Neanderthals, could be Homo erectus, something up there around, you know, 100,000 years and more, you know, in different sites in the Americas. But my main focus will be on modern humans, you know, and the Homo sapiens story. I suggest that they've made their way into the Americas around about 50 to 60,000 years ago, similar time as the rest of the, you know, the populating of Eurasia, basically, you know, that kind of time frame, 50 to 60,000 years ago, which is given for, you know, Asia and then, you know, the arrival to Europe 45,000 years ago. So it's within this migration as an expansion. And in the past, the Americas has always been kind of assumed to have been populated around 13,000 years ago. And there's never been a really good explanation for that. Can you think about it? Why was it that people couldn't have crossed earlier because that land bridge was there you know in earlier periods right so there was yeah. no particular reason why people couldn't have walked in earlier it's been more of a, a dogma than a, a real scientific barrier okay. um and what we've seen now of course is in the last well last couple of weeks there's been a couple of stories one is this a new find in texas which is a um, a stone point and they've dated that at fifteen thousand five hundred years ago which isn't far you know ahead of this sort of the clovis period but the, the the issue is it's not a clovis point you know yeah it's when you say a point it's an arrowhead right yeah it seems to be an arrowhead arrowhead and, right and they're saying that it's yeah a different style and it's, so it's pre-clovis mm-hmm. uh, and in a completely different style so they're saying that this obviously points to a culture that was there before the clovis migration started which is a problem for anyone that's still trying to argue for clovis first um and then the other thing we've seen in the actually, last few days is free studies that have come out, which are DNA studies um, looking at remains that have some of them go back as far as about 11,000 years ago. They've been, you know, sampling across North and South America, mm-hmm. um, trying to work out the migration patterns for these sort of early migrants. And they've come up with a few anomalies in there. So one thing they found is that the early migration, this sort of around 13, 14,000 years. Again, they're talking about when they say an early migration, it's not the one I call an early migration. This is yeah. within the consensus model. They're saying that this migration is spanning very fast and that within a thousand years or so, you've got these people right across, you know, North America, South America, right down to the tip, you know, and they're sort of confused, you know, how that's happened. You know, these right. people have moved through all this land so fast. Um, but they've also found a couple of other anomalies in there. And one of those is that um they found in brazil some dna in one of the sets of remains and this this dna points to aboriginal dna right Mm -hmm. so that's a bit of a headache for them because this came up i think it's about a year or two ago you probably remember if there was a story they sampled dna from a brazilian tribe and they found that there was a link to against aboriginal people which they couldn't make sense of and so now they're finding that there's ancient dna with also this signature and so they're kind of saying well we don't know how this has got here you know was there another much earlier migration which is where it ties into my work because i say yeah absolutely that there's um a movement of people from australia that goes up into asia and that some of these people have walked around you know about 50 60 000 years ago and possibly some have sailed you know, okay. that's another thing that yeah. nobody wants to tackle. But, you know, people well, had boats. We've had people talk about it here. The Chinese apparently came over thousands of years ago to uh, North America. 
Um, it could be the reason for the Olmec. Uh, the Olmec appear <laughs> to be an Asiatic people uh, as well as African-centric people. But I'm curious about this new book, the uh, follow-up to, uh, mm-hmm. I guess it's a, a part two to the Forgotten uh, Exodus series. Yes. What is, yeah. your gonna, what is your main focus? What, is your, what are you drilling down to uh, that is kind mm-hmm. of an eye-opener? Well, I mean, well, I suppose without, really it's, without giving um, it away. We don't want you to give it away, but give us something. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, people may have heard of my research in Ecuador. We've got the name Lost City of Giants. Now, that made its way around the world in the mass media, and it was on a lot of blogs and websites and YouTube videos. Um, that's really where this project started. And, like, I know that for quite a few years, people have sort of said, well, whatever happened to those ruins in the Ecuadorian jungle? So that is going to be kind of at the heart of that book because that's really what launched me on this particular research journey. So people are going to get some closure on, you know, what was that site? How did it get there? Who built it? Uh, and how it ties into these early migrants and Australia. So, I mean, that's really going to be the, the I guess, for a lot of people going to be um, quite interested to know, yeah, whatever happened to that story of the lost city of giants. And it's, and it's, it's not that I've forgotten about it or there was no conclusion. You know, it's just that I've been waiting to get it into this book. Um, so as well as the story of the Aboriginals getting to the Americas, they're going to, get to hear a bit more about that site tell so us I hope- a little bit about these giants what what is the size of them or did what are the remains now you you did you actually went down to that location in uh mm-hmm. i think it's in in the uh brazil right oh uh, in the, the ecuador this is the ecuador, oh, ecuador site excuse yeah. me excuse yeah. me and, and 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 i think there's a a significant ruin there uh mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. has uh the artifacts from a very large people so just talk a little bit about them because that's it i mean when i saw that that was pretty substantial evidence mm-hmm. yeah i mean certainly the there's a few couple of really you know well-known pictures people have seen a guy holding what looks like a huge stone hammer and they may have seen that that's also been featured in um books by like la marzuli and um right. there's a couple, couple of other guys you know so people have probably seen that picture it's like a classic of what this guy holding the big hammer head um so yeah certainly some of the artifacts there look like they could have been used by you know unusually tall people now i mean i'm always wearing this we're giants because you know you've probably seen some people are talking about giants now that are like yeah. bigger than mountains you know yeah. so i mean i'm talking about tall people like maybe you know six seven you know seven foot tall when you versus people that are five foot jungle tribe you know so yeah i'm wary of the word giant for that reason but um but certainly yeah it does there's a lot of legends you know in ecuador and peru and you know Mm -hmm. saying that there was these races of you know very tall people these kind of giants that moved through those regions so it is possible that some of these people are part of that legend you know obviously without the bones i'm not going to say that you know we it definitely is but the people that found the site they said to me that they felt it was a lost sea of giants and that that's where that name came from let me ask uh, you real quickly there's a picture that you posted this is a, over a year ago and you're standing in front of a stone wall now is that stone yep. wall part of a pyramid or is that a, like a defense wall yeah i'm not 100 percent sure my feeling is either a defensive wall or it may even be like part of a sort of a, a canal because i noticed the other side opposite has a similar kind of slope but okay. it's just like muddy so there may be another wall on the opposite side we may be seeing like you know the remnants of a dried out ancient canal um if you imagine a v-shaped kind of you know cut out area but yeah. i'm not 100 percent sure i mean we, we cleared some more of it the last time i was there and there's some quite astonishing blocks and th- those images will feature in the book people will see because there's been doubt you know there's people say, oh this looks like it could be natural okay. what i'm saying is that, like the, the other images i've got 
and I'll share them to you privately, just as you know, but some of these, it's quite obvious they're not because these are rectangle, like a rows of rectangle blocks just going up and up and up at the side of this wall. Right. It's not you know, natural so. at all. It's no, like, no, it's no. Artificial. Never, yeah. Yeah. Nature doesn't build in direct straight rows of rectangle blocks. You know, exactly. That just does not happen. So, so when, when can we expect this new book, part two of The Forgotten uh, Exodus? What, when, is it, when do you think it's going to be available to us uh, in the public? Okay, I'm a- aiming for... March release. Actually, both the other two books that I've worked on, one with my wife and one on my own, have, have been in April. So I wouldn't be surprised if I end up in April, but I'm aiming for March. I hear so. you. Fantastic. <laughs> All right. Hey, Bruce, good catching up with you. Uh, we will definitely have you back on when the book's about uh, ready to be released. Uh, mm-hmm. And for those of you who are interested in learning more about Bruce Fenton, you can go to Amazon and download his book, The Forgotten Exodus. The Into mm-hmm. Africa Theory of Human Evolution is a great read. All right. Thank hey, you. Bruce, thank you. And we will catch you next time when you're ready. Thank you so up. much, Cliff. Thanks for everyone. Yep. Thanks. Cheers. All right. Of all the boys I've known and I've known some. It's one small step for man. Coming to you live from around the world, it's Earth Ancient News. All right, it's time to check in with Adam Young, our disseminator of all good things around the world. Each week we get uh, a complement of reading material, uh, video material, and sometimes it's streaming, audio Whatever it is, it's easy to access. We provide it on the Facebook page, and it's also posted to EarthAncients.com. By the way, we have updated the EarthAncients.com. Check it out. Uh, We have all of our tours there uh, and all of our content on the Facebook page. If you prefer not to go to Facebook, hang out on EarthAncients.com. Hey, Adam. How are you, man? Hey, Cliff. Nice to speak with you again. Yeah. You too. Hey, we're both heading out to uh, Mexico this coming Thursday. Looking forward to seeing you and uh, the wife and the new baby. Oh, yeah. We're, we're jazzed up about it. I can't wait. <laughs> I can't either, man. It's my vacation, so it's going to be a great time. Good to see you guys. It'll be there. It'll be good to hang out. Um, okay, we got three items for this week. Let's start with the first one. It is uh, a 1998 Graham Hancock a uh, program called Quest for the Lost Civilization. What are you? What's that all about? This is it's 20 year anniversary, really. So I, this is the first time I had seen it. Um, I wish I had seen it earlier, but it's if you follow his work or read his books, it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not a lot of new stuff. But I would say this is a really good summary of what him and others like him think. So it features guys like Robert Schock, John Anthony West, and people like that are are in are in the documentary. They're traveling around the world with him to these various sites like. Egypt, obviously, like Mexico, Teotihuacan, and in Peru and Machu Picchu in South America, and then also places like Angkor Wat in oh, uh, really? Cambodia okay. and cool. Madal in Micronesia. And I think his, you know, this is, I don't know if it's a spoiler. At the end, he kind of says, all right, so all of these sites line up to astronomical uh, things that were in the sky or visible in the sky around 10,500 BC, indicating that these are all older i think that's the point and you might disagree with well actually i think they're way older than that you might think that or 
if you follow procession, there's actually more than one time they would have aligned. But I think the point is just to demonstrate that these are way older than, you know, what was commonly what was commonly regarded as as historical fact in the 90s. Definitely, there was very few alternative historians or researchers like Graham. He discusses underwater cities like the ones off the coast of India. And Nan Madal is interesting. He goes there and I don't think he discusses the alignments as much as he shows you footage of it. And this is a city that's like partially submerged. It's it's very obvious it was built when the when the oceans were lower. Let me ask you, is it his wife uh, filming or is it a crew that's filming this? It's a pretty high budget. It's very well edited. It's well filmed. Oh, his okay. wife is his wife is in it, but as like an you know, as an accomplice, not necessarily as a production assistant. Um, <clears throat> there's also a really good there's, there's one of the things I found most interesting. The whole thing's interesting, really, is that Graham is in the Great Pyramid in Giza and he is above the king's chamber, which for those of you who don't know, there are these massive granite blocks. The, the biggest stones in the Great Pyramid appear to be near the king's chamber, at least from what we can tell walking in it anyway. And there are these, there's, I think, if you added them up, there's thousands of tons, and some of them are 180 or over 100 tons of these giant granite blocks that seem to be tuned. They're kind of in the ceiling like rafters above the king's chamber. You cannot see them. They're not visible from inside the chamber, Mm -hmm. which is like perfect geometric box. So above this perfect geometric box are these somewhat rough cut beams. Now, the tops of the beams are not. They're I'm sorry, excuse me, the bottoms are not. They're kind of cleanly shorn, but the tops seem to be like almost like tuned, like they were removing pieces of granite to make it kind of resonate at some sort of a frequency, perhaps. Um, he's up there, and they don't allow the general public in there. Um, I've been there a few times, and you have to get special permission, which this basically. Is bu- this is that area above the king's chamber that has yeah. kind of a, a, a beveled ceiling, right? Yeah, it's like being in the attic of an old house. Exactly. I've seen pictures of it. Yeah. So he's up there and you can see it's covered in graffiti and there's this one he points out this one which is hysterical this one um ancient egyptian graffiti that looks like someone wrote it with like lipstick and it's 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 a cartouche and i guess it says khufu or kafre or one of those guys it's not it's not even like cut into the rock it's like it looks to me like it was painted in red and that's why they they say see khufu built it it's with all the other graffiti that's in italian german and french yeah. And there's this there's this stupid old cartouche that's not even a line. It's like crooked. This it's is such, the cartouche it's such a cartouche that uh, the German students went up there and scratched the paint off of yeah. and raised hell with the the antiquities people of uh, Cairo and also uh, our good friend Zahi Hilwas. Uh, Normally I wouldn't be a proponent of vandalism, but in this case I would say good for them. <laughs> Well, we don't want to promote that. That's not good. Okay, yeah. uh, this is a video. It's ve- available on Gaia, but it's also available on YouTube. Talk a little bit about that real quickly, uh, uh, Adam. The video, you can you can watch almost anything on YouTube, but the quality is a little bit less. If you want the original high, I guess it's high def, um, although it was made in the 90s, so I'm not sure what they filmed it on. But it, it looks better on Gaia or DVD, but you can watch it on YouTube. Obviously, those listening, Gaia is a paid-for program. Um, you can go to Gaia.com forward slash EarthAncients and register or find it on YouTube. But as a- Adam says, it's not very uh, – it's not the greatest quality. So there you go. All right, good one. That's a great one. Okay, number two, 
Ancient bird bones redate human activity in Madagascar by 6,000 years. What's that about? So I love these articles where traditional accepted you know, norms are pushed back. This is from two months ago in September from the Zoological Society of London and published in Science Daily, which is uh, – I guess it's mostly online. But they previously had said that humans had first gotten to Madagascar 2,400 years ago. Between 2,400 and 4,000, which literally makes no sense because it's an island off the coast of Africa. And we know people have been in Africa for hundreds of thousands of years. So why why would you think that they lived in Africa and only made it to this island 2,000 years ago? Like, it doesn't make any sense. Anyway, they found bird bones that show existence of uh, – they show evidence that their humans were cutting into them. And they can date these to, uh, I guess, 9,000 years ago. So they've just pushed back their timeline by more than double. Wow. Excellent. Yeah, short and sweet, but it's um the more of, of these we see, I think the better because the less I guess the less resistance maybe maybe mainstream will have when you say, Hey, guess what else is wrong? Right. No no no, we we, we like that. And it's in Science Daily, which is a respected online publication. Fantastic. Okay, our final uh, piece of content for the week is titled A Secret Entrance into the Great Pyramid in Egypt. Now, this is something that's always curious because uh, we just don't get enough information uh, about this. We have this uh, consortium of Japanese and French scientists who have scanned the pyramid, have detected this room. That was over a year ago or close to a year ago, and we haven't heard anything since. So what's this about? This is done by the ancient architects, folks, Um you may have seen a few of his videos. We talked about them on your yeah. show on Earth Ancients, yeah. and it's a it's a British uh, narrator. He does a very um, good job. High yeah. production values. Yeah, go ahead. He, he's 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 exceptional, and his conclusions you might not agree with all the time, but I think the way he gets there are generally founded in in, in very good logic. So there's a lot of information here. The secret entrance is kind of the end conclusion, but along the way he 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 notes a, a number of really interesting facts. One is that Herodotus, which is the ancient Greek historian, I believe, he's the one that started the rumor that Khufu, Khafre, and Menke built these three pyramids. He's, he apparently just started that. So then everyone started repeating it. Um, and that's why, you know, traditional Egyptologists are so reluctant to go back on that because it's like, you know, that rumor is older than the Bible, if you think about it, and um, or any other modern religious text. So, the only the only real evidence we had that that humans had been inside it was this guy Al Mahmud, who was a ninth century person who seems to be the first one to actually break into it, um, which means that it's possible that the ancient Egyptians, the dynastic Egyptians, never were inside either. We don't know that. Um, the ancient architects channel seems to believe that perhaps Khufu covered it up or he sealed it off, perhaps because he seemed to be doing some work on the site at some point. But what the most I think interesting component of this video is he brings on a geologist by the name of Frank Zalewski, who discusses the fact that there's three separate types of limestone, three grades of limestone used in the construction of the Great Pyramid. And apparently none of them came from the quarries on site. Egyptology and mainstream likes to say, oh, there's quarries on site. They dug up the stones and built this thing. He says, no, those quarries were used to build um, churches and mosques in Cairo. The, the granite, or excuse me, the limestone from the Great Pyramid and the other two pyramids near it came from, we're not sure exactly where, but it was far away. Wow. And why, so why were there three? Well, they were used in three separate 
components of the pyramid. One was used, uh, the, the most of it was used in the blocks that are now visible. Another uh, separate type of limestone was used in the casing stones, which you cannot see anymore. They, they were quarried off and removed to build, again, buildings in Cairo. Um, but these casing stones were apparently laser precisely smooth. They were fitted together intricately and completely flat, completely smooth. And they were reported to be on average 30 feet long, which would which would mean they were, you know, m- you know, more than a couple tons, probably. So the third and probably the most interesting uh, type of limestone is was actually used in the pyramid. But it was it was used to make. I would say I would call them sub pyramids. If you look at the pyramid from the side, you can see an outline, a somewhat darker shaded outline of a smaller pyramid Mm -hmm. with the same base and a higher uh, apex. So it has a wider angle. The top, the top angle is much wider. It's like a pyramid inside of a pyramid. You can actually see, he points it out and then you can actually see it in photographs, um, which is, I think, astoundingly interesting. If you look at the entrance now, the entrance with that kind of, um, v-shaped kind of roof sort of a structure that um you can walk inside is at the very is, is at the apex is at the tip of of that sub pyramid i just mentioned so he was basically saying well maybe that exists on the other sides maybe there's another entrance maybe there's another shaft that comes out that we don't know about and that's sort of his conclusion now i think it's important to mention that when you go inside the pyramid there are no stairs there are no walkways uh, most of the most of the shafts are, although perfectly built, perfectly geometric, not high enough to stand up tall in. If you can build a pyramid like this, you know, I think you can pretty much you can pretty much build a hallway that you can stand up in. So it, it's my opinion that this is not a building that was meant for people to be walking in, at least not normally, maybe for maintenance or, or whatnot. Yeah. But, you know, the stairs that are in there today were basically blasted into the stone they were you know there's iron nails and everything else that are anchored yeah. into the into the granite and the limestone to provide basically wooden steps for people to walk into to yeah. walk in um yeah. it was perfectly I, smooth and so i think that a number of engineers have, have concluded and uh my favorite is uh chris dunn who is a, a, a an expert in machines uh, and tooling uh, believes that the Great Pyramid was a, a machine of some kind. Yeah. Uh, and it's just missing a lot of parts. It's probably uh, taken out so it doesn't work anymore. We don't know what the hell the machine did, but what a monstrosity of a machine. <laughs> it's just huge. And there's huge. thousands of them all around the world. I think these things are undoubtedly, they, they had a purpose. The purpose wasn't to conceal a body. I mean, there's, there's the the Great the the pyramid right next to the Great Pyramid, the other one, the other large one, the chambers are like beneath it. Um, yeah. And there's other pyramids where the chambers that they say are tombs or crypts or whatnot, they're not even inside the pyramid. They're like underground, which doesn't make sense. You don't, you wouldn't build that uh, on top of a grave. Like it doesn't make any sense at all. You would actually expend that GDP and that manpower to dig yeah. deeper into the earth. If you're trying to protect a body, a pyramid is the least efficient way of doing it. Yeah, we won't get into Egyptology and their lack of uh, of uh, clarity, but uh, <laughs> there you go. Hey, fantastic as always, Adam. Uh, these are good. They will be up on the Facebook page and also on earthancients.com. Check them out. Take a look at them and get informed. All right. Uh, we'll see you in Mexico, my friend. Yeah, we'll see you next week, Cliff. Thanks.
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talking about Dworka for the last few weeks, uh, the unique nature of the myth of Dworka, uh, Lord Krishna's uh, golden city. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to uh, bring in somebody who is writing about Dworka, uh, a friend of ours, uh, an author who writes quite regularly for Graham Hancock's website. He's also published in other online uh, magazines. Uh, Bibhu Dev Mizra, and uh, he has written a new article on Dwarka that we want to talk about today. The article is called The Common Impact in the Indian Ocean That May Have Submerged Dwarka. And this is an important piece simply because uh, Bibhu is focusing on common impacts in Earth's ancient past. And this is of interest to us not only because uh, Graham is writing or has finished a new book and has published it on uh, contact, uh, com- comet impacts uh, in the Atlantic, which may have caused the uh, uh, destruction of ancient cultures in that time for, uh, time period, which is approximately 12,000 years ago. But also, we want to get a sense of uh, perhaps other devastations around the world and uh, Dwarka is a fascination of mine simply because not only is Lord Krishna's uh, city, but it represents a sophisticated culture thousands and thousands of years before uh, the Egyptians. So, Babu, welcome. Great to have uh, you. Hi, Cliff. Thanks for having me back, Cliff. Okay, so tell us about uh, Kolkata, India. What's going on with Kolkata, India these days? That's where you're located. We want to talk about that. Yeah, Kolkata is uh, Kolkata is, is an ancient city, but uh, it came into prominence during the colonial times when the British were here. It was yeah. the capital of it, it was the capital of the British uh, uh, rule in India uh, right. uh, before it was shifted to Delhi. Yeah, and uh, so our culture is a kind of cosmopolitan. Uh, we uh, we love our food, we love our music, we love our theaters, 
and a uh, lot of poets, a uh, lot of spiritual people from uh, Calcutta. Uh, uh, Yogananda, you must have heard of him. He was from Calcutta, as well as his guru, Yukteswar, was also from Calcutta. Oh, so, oh Yukteswar was from Calcutta? Yeah, yeah. I didn't know they're that. All, oh, okay. they're, all, they're all Bengalis, you know, and I'm also a Bengali. <laughs> yeah. For those of you who are not familiar with uh, Sri Yukteswar, he is the sage who updated the yugas the yugas uh, are the system we'll be talking about the yugas today but uh, i didn't know that i didn't know that he was from there that's interesting so it, it does have an ancient uh, uh past now when we think of calcutta we think of co- of course british rule but when you say it's ancient what would you say five uh, four or five thousand years or not that mm-hmm. old no, not that old. It basically dates from the early Buddhist period. Uh, that would make it around 2,000, 2,500 years old. Yeah. Uh, we found we found a lot of Buddhist artifacts dating back uh, to the very early period of Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I think last time we talked, you said that there are some fa- fairly significant uh, temples uh, in Kolkata too, right? Yeah, we, this part of India is generally uh, focused on the worship of the mother goddess uh, Kali or Durga. And there's a very famous Kali temple in Calcutta, which uh, draws people from all over India. And it's also very famous for uh, Krishna. Uh, there's a Krishna movement here, which started in the 15th century, and it grew very strong. Okay. And uh, and you've, you might have heard of ISKCON, which is the International Krishna Consciousness Society. And they have the headquarters uh, very close to Calcutta at a place called Mayapur. Okay, let's let's get into this right now because uh, we have a, an hour to talk about Dwarka. Um, what do we know about Dwarka? It it's, uh, was claimed in, in uh, the myth that it was uh, Lord Krishna's city. Now, let's start off. Who is Lord Krishna? Well, uh, Lord Krishna was is generally regarded as an incarnation of uh, the creator and the preserver uh, god of Hinduism, Vishnu. So he's he's regarded as a full manifestation of Vishnu. Uh, so when Krishna came in uh, came to the earth, he came with the uh, intent of uh, destroying all the v- uh, wicked kings who were uh, ruling on the earth at that point of time at the end of the Dwapara Yuga. And he wanted to make sure that uh, all of these wicked people are destroyed so that when the Kali Yuga begins, uh, it can begin on a fresh note. Uh, okay, right. So the, the interesting thing, though, about Krishna is that he's a mythological figure, but he may have been an actual human being, right? Yeah, that's how the, uh, if you read the Mahabharata, he's actually portrayed as a human being. I mean, human being with a lot of magical abilities. But a human being, nonetheless, and the and the way he died in the end, he was actually shot in the foot by an arrow launched by a hunter. So that's a very mortal way of dying, yeah. you know. So yeah. so he was he was a human being, but he had uh, some uh, really uh, supernatural powers, and the reason why he had those powers that is also explained. He was actually a very advanced yogi. He was an ascetic, mm-hmm. and it was his yogic powers which actually fascinated people. Right. Now, you mentioned the uh, Mahabharata, which is the prehistoric text, and his life life and these wars that happened and uh, Dwarka are described in these e- in ancient epics, correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about Dwarka. Why 
It's, it's on uh, the coast of India. What, where is it located? There's a long story behind that. Uh, uh, what happened was that uh, Krishna's uh, father, uh, okay, let me start with Ugrasena. Ugrasena was the king of uh, Mathura, and he had a demonic son called Kamsa. And Kamsa, he had a sister uh, called Devaki, who was married to another person called Vasudeva. And when when, his, uh, when Kamsa's sister was married, he heard a prophecy that the eighth son of Devaki will be the cause of his death. And Kamsa was a demonic being. He was, uh, he was often described as a Rakshasa. And Rakshasas in Indian uh, mythology basically meant uh, giant people, giant ferocious people. And they, they could be really tall up to as tall as maybe a palm tree. And they often had powers of magic and illusion and stuff like that. And of course, we hear about giants in so many other uh, mythological tales from across the world. Wow. So anyhow, when Kamsa, when Kamsa heard about this prophecy, he locked up uh, Devaki and her husband. And every time a son was born to them, he went there and killed that child. So when the eighth son was born on that particular night, what uh, uh, Vasudeva did was he took him to the other side of the Yamuna River, to the, uh, to the home of a cowherd king, kept him there. And on the same night, that cowherd king had given birth to a daughter. So he basically exchanged the babies. And he got the daughter back to the prison cell where he was locked up. So next day, Kamsa kills the baby girl and he thinks that he has killed off Krishna. But Krishna was not was not killed because he was growing up on the other side of the Yamuna River with the cowherds of Vrindavan. Hmm. So there Krishna grew up and when he turned 18, he came to Mathura and he killed Kamsa and he reinstalled uh, Kamsa's father on the throne of Mathura. Uh, thereafter, what happened was that uh, there was another king called Jarasandh who was whose daughters were married to Kamsa. So Jarasandh was really angry that uh, his son-in-law was killed by Krishna. So he kept on attacking Mathura. 18 times he attacked Mathura and 18 times he was defeated. And finally, Krishna and his brother Balarama decided, you know what, we can't stay in Mathura anymore. We have to relocate to some other place to just get away from this menace. Mm -hmm. So the entire Yadava clan, so the entire clan along with Krishna and Balarama, they migrated to the western coast of India to a place called Kushasthali, that was an ancient uh, city uh, where uh, a, a where a fort had already been built by an ancestor of Krishna, but that fort had fallen into disrepair. So they went there and they rebuilt that fort. They enlarged it and they reclaimed around uh, 100 square kilometers of land from the ocean and they made this spectacular city on the coastline uh, and they called it Dwarka. Uh, the term Dwarka means uh, the city with with gates. What they did was they built a number of gateways uh, on the approach to the city and these gateways were protected by many barriers. So because of this large number of gateways, the city was called Dwarka. Let me ask so you Dwar real quickly, let me just stop you right there. One of the things that uh, the, the text, these uh, uh, ancient texts talk about is a tremendous amount of warring going on. And, uh, and also some of the descriptions uh, reveal... And they actually use terms like cars and other flying mm -hmm. vehicles. It, this must have been a very sophisticated period in, in ancient uh, India. What do you say about that? Yeah, it was definitely a very advanced time. But uh, the nature of the technology was not near, uh, not really the kind of technology that we use today, where we use uh, machines and uh, semiconductor devices 
Instead, they seem to be using some kind of a, a mental technology. I mean, for instance, uh, in the Mahabharata, we read of uh, all these uh, weapons which were fired, and these weapons were uh, capable of bringing about huge amount of destruction, just like right. uh, modern, yeah. just like modern day weapons. And they were what they were doing is that they seem to be uh, uh, invoking the powers of nature, the elemental forces of nature, and they were invoking these forces by uttering some mantras. So it was basically sound vibrations, mm -hmm. specific sound vibrations, which were triggering the elemental forces of nature. And they were triggering, not only invoking them, but they were also directing these forces of nature to achieve their purpose. So that's that sounds kind of like uh, some kind of uh, science fantasy or yeah. uh, but it's not the kind of technology that we have today yeah but the mahabharata also talks about just continuing wars and it doesn't it's like during this period of time if if you said something bad about someone's wife all of a sudden the whole city erupts into war it's it's <laughs> why why do they uh, speculate about so many wars is Tremendous amount of death during this time. Yeah, and I think the reason is that uh, the Mahabharata epic was uh, situated at the confluence, at the intervening period between the Dwapara Yuga and the Kali Yuga, and these okay. uh, periods and these periods of transition are always very unstable. I mean, the energetic there's a great deal of energetic fluctuations during this period, and that seems to drive people into some kind of a warring frenzy. I mean. Okay. Right now, for instance, uh, as per my calculations, we are very uh, we are approaching the end of the Kali Yuga, and that could be one of the reasons why we see so much violence around the world uh, today. It's, uh, today as well, uh, it's just it's just the energy changes uh, uh, at the end of a yuga, which uh, triggers people uh, into uh, fighting and violence. What would you say? Uh, give us an estimate for time frame for the uh, uh, writings, this uh, Mahabharata. Uh, and the wars that uh, Krishna were engaged in. What's See, as for the as for the traditional estimate, uh, Lord Krishna mm -hmm. died at uh, 3102 BC. Yeah, and uh, so that that's the time when the Mahabharata was also situated. That's the traditional estimate. But as for the uh, revised Yuga cycle timeline that I had proposed in an earlier article, and which I have also leveraged in this article as well. I believe that uh, the war took place sometime between 3,900 and 3,700 BC. So and that's, that was all that's roughly total, uh, what, 6,000 years ago? 6,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah, which is pretty mind-blowing when you consider, uh, according to current estimates, the, the, the Egyptian pyramids were not built yet. <laughs> or any of the sophisticated uh, uh, societies were around. And here, here we have ancient India... Uh, uh, quite sophisticated, using weapons that we don't know about that are uh, beyond our understanding. There are different paradigm, different technology. So um, that's right. But w what I read about Dwarka is it means gateway to heaven, which is fascinating. Yeah, that's another way. That's another interpretation. The most common interpretation is, I think, a uh, gated city or city with gates. Right. Uh, okay. So here's Krishna, which who today is is venerated as a god. Uh, you told us a little bit about him and some of the legends, but um, uh, so he establishes Dwarka, and 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 who who lives there? Does he just live there? Or does he bring other people there? Uh, he lives there with his brother and the entire clan. All the warriors uh, migrate from Mathura 
to Dwarka and they stay there. And uh, it's, a, it's a huge city. It's like 100 square kilometers. And they build uh, massive uh, palaces, which are studded with uh, precious jewels. They build uh, towering uh, buildings, which reach up to the clouds and which are topped with golden domes. And the entire city is fortified. There's a massive fort, which is, uh, again, encrusted with gold. So there's a lot of mention about gold and precious jewels whenever you read about Dwarka. It's called the golden city, not uh, the primary, because when you looked at Dwarka from a distance, it just seems to uh, glitter uh, in the sun. Okay. Now, now what have scientists uh, done there to, to discover the uh, submerged portion of Dwarka? Because... Uh, apparently, there are a couple of temples that are still on the outskirts there on the coast that are mm-hmm. considered Dwarka, but the, the vast majority of this uh, so-called Dwarka location is underwater. Is that correct? That's true, but we uh, we still don't know the exact location. I mean, right now, there's a city called Dwarka, and there's a temple called the Dwarka Dish Temple. It's a really spectacular temple. I've been there, and uh, it's located right on the sea coast. But this particular temple was established much later. It's from the 16th century. And uh, but if you go, uh, uh, but if you do an offshore exploration, and one of the archaeologists of India, S. R. Rao, he had carried out an offshore exploration, and he found submerged remains of a protohistoric town. But even that particular town uh, was dated to around 1500 BC, which is like uh, much later than the period of the Mahabharata. And and the, and the structures that he found resembled the Harappan era cities. So he found uh, encircling wall. He found uh, rectangular enclosures which could have been uh, used for the port. And he found stone anchors. So so what what was found was really a, a submerged port uh, dating to the Harappan era of around 1500 BC. And uh, it doesn't really look like the city of uh, Dwarka founded by Krishna. So, right. so, so we still don't know the exact location of Dwarka. It's submerged somewhere there in the western coast of India, yeah. and we are yet to find it. Let me ask you this, and, and uh, uh, I read your article. It was very well written, uh, by the way. Uh, and for those of you listening, I will be posting this article on the Facebook page, which will also go to the, um, the website, earthancients.com. Is it possible that, uh, like a lot of other ancient cultures, the city they found underwater is built on top of an earlier city, uh, which could be Dwarka. Is that a possibility yeah, in your yeah. mind? Mm-hmm. That's definitely possible, yeah. But we haven't yet explored to that depth. I mean, uh, we haven't got... What SRO did was he explored up to one kilometer from the seashore. So maybe if we go further down, we might be able to find uh, uh, the older city. Okay. Uh, I'm just curious yeah. about that because when, when I was a little disappointed, I was waiting for you to say, yes, this is Dwarka, but your research shows that, and some of the latest refinements show that, no, it's the city that we see and the water isn't old enough to be Krishna's city. So, and, and, and if you look at Maya culture in Central America, they build on top of very early um, mm-hmm. uh, uh, established cities. Uh, and right. which are in many cases buried, and they're significantly older. So that's a possibility, which is great to hear you admit to. <laughs> yeah, definitely, yeah. <laughs> okay, let's, let's get into the meat of this because um, your article, uh, for the most part, is focusing on an, a comet hit that created, in your terms uh, and in the researchers' terms, tsunamis that destroyed uh, quite a bit of 
land uh, mass uh, in India. Now, um, uh, first of all, what is the Brahma Danta? What, what is that? Yeah. See, uh, the coming to the submergence of Dwarka, uh, let me get into the story of the submergence of Dwarka. So what the story tells us is that uh, the entire Yadava clan of Krishna, they had uh, started fighting between themselves and they killed, killed each other. And then uh, Krishna sent a message to his friend Arjuna asking him to uh, take the uh, residents of Dwarka and escort them to safety. And he told him that Dwarka is going to be engulfed very soon by the ocean. So he knew in advance that Dwarka is going to be submerged. And then when Arjuna comes uh, to Dwarka and he uh, tells the people of Dwarka to uh, get all their belongings and to put them on their chariots and get and to get ready to evacuate Dwarka, he tells them that exactly after seven days we are going to set out from Dwarka because after that the city is going to be flooded. And that's exactly what happens. As soon as the people leave the city, they look back and they find that the ocean is flooding Dwarka. So Krishna knew the exact day when Dwarka is going to be submerged. And then you need to ask the question, uh, how, how could he have such a precise knowledge of the date of submergence? I mean, if it was due to an earthquake or a volcano or some kind of landslides, then there's no way to know about it beforehand. But if it was due to a comet impact and a, and a tsunami uh, created by that impact, then it could have been foretold because you can see a comet in the skies for many weeks before its arrival. And it's possible to calculate the trajectory and find out when it might hit you. So that would give you some amount of time to evacuate the city. And so I was looking for some reference in the Mahabharata to find out if it mentions anything about a comet impact. And I found the work of uh, Professor Arun Iyengar, and he has pointed out a particular verse, the Mahabharata, which says that the Yadavas, the death of the Yadavas was caused by a, by the Brahma Danda. Now Brahma is the creator deity, and Danda means uh, rod, uh, rod of chastisement, you could say. So Brahma Danda gives you the impression of a some kind of a weapon. But Professor Iyengar has pointed out that Brahma Danda in the work of the sage Parasara actually means a comet. It's a three-headed, three-colored comet. So the Mahabharata explicitly mentions that a comet was responsible for the death of the Yadavas. And, and since the and since Dwarka was submerged right after the death of the Yadavas, it means that a comet must have been responsible for the submergence of uh, Dwarka. So the Brahmadanta is a comet, and um, yeah. and um, it's fascinating to consider that the uh, astronomers of that time could accurately determine that this was an incoming comet uh, that would be significant enough to um, not only uh, hit the Earth significantly, but cause tidal waves, which we know as today as tsunamis. Um, you described the work of R. Uh, S. R. Rayo, who's an archaeologist, who speculated that um, tsunamis were the, dis the reason for Dwarka's demise. What is the evidence that he shows of that? Does he show... Because it, when you look at tsunamis, and you show this... Uh, in uh, satellite imagery, but in, in Central America, they have uh, been able to show that massive stones 
and uh, huge amounts of land dirt are pushed way inland, which is the uh, evidence, it's the signature of a tsunami. What do we see in the areas that you uh, uh, consider, or what did the Areo find that is significant uh, uh, telling of a um, tsunami? Actually, Rao did not uh, base his opinion on any specific uh, um, evidence that he found. He was basically referring to the text, and he was okay. saying that as he was saying that as per the text, the submergence of the worker happened very rapidly, and uh, the sea basically came in all of a sudden and uh, flooded the city, and that kind of gives you the impression of a tsunami. Okay, is there is there evidence in this writing of mass death? Or did they know enough in advance that people got the hell out of there quick? Yeah, they, they knew in advance when it's going to submerge. So all of them, uh, as per the text, all of them managed to evacuate. And uh, But they, when they looked back, they found that the sea is already encroaching into the city. Okay, so it it was a severe event. Now, you also found uh, the work of the Holocene Impact Working Group. Talk a little bit about them. I, I found that their their work was fascinating. That's true. The Holocene Impact, uh, uh, the Holocene Impact Working Group is a group of six scientists, and uh, they have proposed that uh, comet impacts are a lot more frequent in the mid-Holocene period than what we have been led to believe. And these impacts have caused uh, a lot of climatic changes and a lot of hardships to the human societies of that period. And one of their findings is the Burkill Crater, which they found in the Indian Ocean, uh, 12,000 feet below the sea level and roughly 1,500 kilometers from Madagascar. And they have proposed that the Burkle Impact Crater, uh, the Burkle Impact Crater had uh, generated a mega tsunami uh, with uh, waves as high as 200 meters, which uh, smashed into the coastlines of Madagascar and Western Australia. And they're responsible for creating the very massive uh, chevron dunes that we find along the coastlines of both uh, southern Madagascar as well as uh, Western Australia. Okay, so tell uh, our audience what a chevron is, number one. And number two, what does it look like? And and you're looking at, uh, and what this group found is that looking at satellite imagery on the land, they could determine that these chevrons Uh, were the result of tsunami. So what is a chevron? A chevron is basically a wedged-shaped sand dune. Uh, Wedged-shaped dunes, uh, basically like the chevron stripes uh, on a military uh, uniform. So when you look at it from... uh, uh, on Google uh, Earth or, uh, or when you look at some satellite imagery, you basically can see the outline of some waves. I mean, it, it actually looks like the outline of gigantic waves crashing into the uh, landmass. Yes. Uh, they're, they're, they look like waves, but they're sand dunes that are shaped like waves, which is what okay. the, the water, as it recedes, left deposits. Is that how it, is that how it works? The, the deposits of sand, which are That's the right. sediment that is carried, the sediment carried within the body of the wave. That's right. The waves carry the sediments and they deposit it, and and uh, that and that's why you find the sediments extending nearly uh, 50 kilometers inland. In Madagascar, you find these chevron dunes rising up to nearly 200 meters high, and they extend nearly 50 kilometers inland because that's that's how far these waves traveled before they stopped. Okay. So and, uh, go ahead. 
Yeah, and before uh, before they had proposed this megasonomy theory, it was generally believed that uh, these Chevron dunes were created by wind. Uh, but uh, uh, Dallas Abbott, who's the leader of that group, uh, she has pointed out that the Chevron dunes of both Madagascar as well as Western Australia, they're not oriented to the prevailing wind directions, but rather they're oriented to the refracted megasonomy from the Berkeley impact crater region. So it couldn't have been uh, done by winds. Uh, secondly, they've also found a lot of uh, carbonate, calcium carbonate deposits in the sediments. And uh, if, if, if they were created by the wind, then they would have been 100% quartz because windblown dunes are 100% quartz. And <coughs> these particular Chevron dunes, they have nearly 40% calcium carbonate, which comes from the oceanic environment. They also found intact microfossils, and if intact microfossils were brought in by the wind, they would they would have been smashed into pieces. But it's only if if only if they are brought in by the waves do you find this uh, impact uh, this intact microfossils. What's the and date? Finally, what's the date of that uh, of that uh, impact? Do we have an idea? Yeah, I mean uh, originally uh, Bruce Massey had Dr. Bruce Massey had proposed 2,800 BC. <laughs> 2800 BC, but his analysis was based on flood legends and uh, astronomical observations and not on the basis of sediments collected either from the Madagascar chevrons or from the impact site. So right now the date that has been proposed is around 4000 BC for the impact crater. Around 6000 years ago. 6000 years ago. Okay, Uh, go ahead. And, uh, and a, a very specific date has come uh, come to us from the Western Australian uh, chevrons. Uh, a group of scientists have done a radiocarbon dating of the sediments in the Western Australian chevrons, and they have found two specific tsunami uh, events. One which took place quite recently, around a thousand years back, and the other one they have dated to 3,700 BC. Wow. So, so wow. that. Uh, so that uh, these two days, 4000 BC and, the, and 3700 BC, they actually fall into the period of transition from the Dwapara Yuga to the Kali Yuga, which I had proposed in my original article on the Yuga cycle. So the dates actually fall in the right, uh, uh, into, uh, actually fall into the period of transition, uh, which is significant because that is when the Mahabharata war, war was supposed to have been fought and that is when Dwarka was supposed to have been ended by the ocean okay is there any um, uh, landform markings in and around the area of the Warka that uh, are significant enough to consider a, a being hit by a, a tsunami is there is are chevrons around that area too uh, well uh, the Holocene impact group have uh, has found chevrons uh, uh, it was the peninsular tip of India in Tamil Nadu. So the tsunami had traveled till Tamil Nadu. Uh, that, that we know for sure. But as far as Dwarka, I haven't come across any literature as of now which talks of tsunami deposits. But that doesn't mean they don't exist there. It's just that people haven't been looking for them consciously. Okay. And and when you say uh, these are massive tsunamis, are they... Are they uh, life terminating to whatever they hit? In other words, is is there any chance of somebody surviving one of these? Well, you know, two two hundred meter high waves. I mean, the tsunami that struck uh, uh, Indonesia uh, was had generated, I think, only ten meter high waves. Yeah. 
10 meter was, high was the one in Indonesia? Yeah, I think so. That, that's like 300, that's what, 300 feet? 30 feet. 30 feet, excuse me. Yeah. So yeah, you're saying, what were the ones in Dwarka? Uh, the ones in uh, Madagascar were at 200 meters. That's like 600 feet. I mean, that's <laughs> that's enormous. I mean, that's like yeah. a 60 yeah. story building, you know? Yeah, that's that's insane. That's that's uh, so nothing's going to survive that. Nothing is going to survive the line of uh, the tsunami impact itself. And uh, when a comet like that hits the ocean, it also generates a huge amount of uh, superheated uh, water vapor. And that's going to spawn, uh, you know, hurricanes and uh, all across the globe. And there'll be dust and water vapor everywhere. Has the, has the Holocene Impact Working Group determined that uh, comet hits have been part of uh, Earth's history over the thousands of years, or are they more focused on more recent events? They are basically talking about the mid to late Holocene, which means from around 5000 BC till the current period. And uh, regarding this Berkeley Impact Crater, uh, what they believe is that in one of their papers, uh, they have written that they believe it was a Shoemaker-Levy kind of impact, wherein there's a large comet which actually breaks up into multiple fragments, and each of these fragments then hit uh, different parts of the uh, world. And they have identified two more craters in the Pacific Ocean, which uh, they believe came from the same uh, comet, from the same disintegrating comet. So wow. they've already identified three impact craters from a single comet. So the ones that hit in the Pacific would have disrupted, uh, what, Mexico? Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is roughly 6,000 years ago. 6,000 years ago. So you might have had uh, civilizations in Easter Island and Hawaii, and so those would have been affected as well. Right. That's something for me to look into. I'll tell you. That's yeah. pretty interesting. Um, the younger Dryas impact that's suggested by Graham Hancock uh, is a whole different uh, impact because he prophesied, and the prophesizes, but he predicts, or others have predicted, that's around 12,000 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, does this impact working group, the Holocene impact working group, uh, present us with some uh, cautionary research that we need to be paying more attention to these com- uh, comments? Uh, not, not that I've heard of, uh, but a lot of people, a lot of scientists are now waking up to the possibility that comet impacts are a lot more frequent than what you have been, uh, believe, what we have believed in now. And, uh, for instance, right now there are 170 impact craters which have been found and all of them are on land, but oceans cover, but oceans cover 70% of the earth. So for every impact crater that you find on land, they have pointed out that you might find there might be two more impact craters in the ocean which have not yet been discovered. So a lot of impacts have not yet been discovered. And uh, previously they used to think that a lot of uh, volcanic activity has taken place in the past, but now a lot of scientists believe that those are not volcanoes, but they're actually craters left behind by comet or asteroid impacts. Yeah, you mentioned that in your book. Uh, you bring up a, a researcher, Benny Pizer, who's an anthropologist, he says for every land impact, there's two impacts in the ocean. How does he theorize that? Uh, well, I think uh, it's I mean, because of the... Is, it, is that because it, it would break off the main uh, 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 comet coming through our atmosphere, breaks up, and part of it hits the 
land and then the rest of it hits into the ocean just because there's so much more uh, water on the planet than there is land. Is that what his theory is? Yeah, that could be it because uh, it's 30% is land and 70% is ocean. So if one lands on Earth, on the land, then you could have two in the ocean. So it's just a percentage uh, ratio based on that. Do you see the Yugas playing a part in this and our understanding about the ancient past and, and, and uh, comet hits? Is there any kind of focus on that? I think the comets uh, play a very important role uh, as far as the Yuga transitions are concerned. Uh, uh, the, our ancient texts that tell us that uh, during this period of uh, transition from one Yuga to the other, uh, there's, uh, there's almost a total collapse of civilizations. Uh, the, the existing civilizations are completely annihilated and uh, you find no trace of those previous civilizations. And then after a while, a new civilization emerges with a new set of philosophies, new guidelines, new artistic uh, uh, norms and other things. Okay. So, yeah, and I feel that comets uh, might be responsible uh, to a large extent for the uh, devastation that on the, on the cataclysms that brings an existing civilization to its end. Uh, uh, primarily because these, uh, or these uh, transitions, they happen every 2,700 years. I mean, so... When you think of a cycle of that length, uh, it's uh, difficult to conceive of of uh, any terrestrial cause for that. It basically tells you there must be some kind of a cosmic uh, event taking place every 2,700 years that brings the civilization across the world uh, to an end. Uh, why don't you give us a little understanding of the yugas? And as I mean, would you believe, would you tell us, I wouldn't say you believe, but you, because this is what you research, but would you say that uh, based on the yugas that civilizations have come and gone over hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years? I think it could be millions of years. And uh, uh, Michael Kremer has, has found evidence of uh, human uh, uh, of uh, Homo sapiens skulls uh, in the Pliocene from two to five million years ago, and he has presented at least, uh, I think, seven or eight examples, well-researched examples uh, of uh, uh, human skulls that go back uh, two to five million years from now. So, which means uh, the Yugas have been here for, I mean, the Yugas cycles continue uh, indefinitely, but humans have been here at least uh, five million years ago based on his research. So yugas continue uh, for millions and maybe billions of years, and uh, but we don't know when human humans first appeared on Earth. That is still a mystery, but uh, it certainly goes back much earlier than what uh, mainstream scientists believe. You you've traveled the world uh, somewhat. Uh, you've been in the United States. You've traveled to other parts of the world, and when you see these ancient places like. Uh, uh, Pumapuku, Tiwatiwakan, uh, and these places, it makes sense that they are extremely old and we perhaps have misdated them and they're much older than they uh, uh, are conventionally dated. Is that What do you feel about that? I think so. I think a lot of sites uh, are much older than what we have been led to believe and one of the reasons for that is that it's very difficult to date stone structures. And so we just have to go by uh, the existing carbon remains, which could be from people who have come and settled there much later. Teotihuacan being a prime example, I mean, uh, the site looks immensely old and it could be one of the oldest places 
in Mexico, but uh, they have dated it to I think what 180 or something. Yeah, few few hundred years or a few th- uh, a couple of thousand years. Yeah, a couple of thousand years. So yeah, which which does uh, doesn't uh, uh, you know uh, seem very convincing once you visit those sites. Yeah, um, you write in your article that uh, in the mid evil period, people looked in the sky. Uh, perhaps we have lost documents that talk about the comments, but we don't have a sense of comments anymore. I mean, our scientists now are kind of uh, ringing the alarm because some of these comments are so big they could be uh, terminating events if they hit us. But uh, have we lost documents, you think, uh, that really describe uh, in detail uh, keeping an eye in the skies for these uh, oncoming objects? I think our ancient ancestors, they used to track comets. I think in India, for instance, uh, there's a whole body of literature that talk about ancient comets uh, in the sky. And uh, in fact, in China as well, they used to keep a record of cometary events. A lot of our knowledge about ancient comets comes to us from the, uh, the silk texts, as they're called in China. And uh, they have found uh, uh, texts that go back to around, uh, I think, 3000 BC, uh, which talk about uh, the appearance and disappearance of many comets. They even go into the details of their appearance. Some comets have multiple tails, some comets have multiple heads. So so the ancients were uh, very conscious about comets and they kept a track of them. And they believed that comets uh, brought a lot of destruction. I mean, they were regarded as the harbingers of doom. During the medieval period, they believed that comets are responsible for the end of dynasties, for revolutions, for wars, famines, pestilence, and all kinds of calamities. And there's a reasoning for that. I mean, they didn't just say that uh, just to frighten people. I mean, they they really sincerely believed that comets uh, actually come with the purpose of either bringing an existing civilization to an end or changing the course of a particular civilization by uh, creating some kind of hardships for the people and forcing them to migrate or leave their existing lands and go to some other place. So they believed in this, uh, believed in that. And one of the, uh, what I read was one of the medieval theologians uh, called Conrad Dietrich, he has said, he said that uh, the first comet brought on the deluge of Noah. The first comet brought on the deluge of Noah, which he was basically referring to the great flood. And that flood took place uh, at the end of the Ice Age. And now we know that a giant comet must have come into the inner solar system and bombarded our planet uh, with uh, uh, large fragments uh, around that time. So they seem to be knowing about that as well. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Graham's book, uh, his new book on ancient America, talks, it starts with this uh, impact. Uh, I haven't read the whole thing. I read parts of some excerpts, but uh, that was 12,000 years ago. And then you're talking about later impacts, Mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of scary because these are terminating events. Uh, Now, we don't know if the one that destroyed Dworka uh, also destroyed the rest of the planet, but those tsunamis would be signi- significant enough to uh, kill off civilizations that were perhaps up to 20 miles inland, maybe, or maybe more. Maybe much more than that. And uh, because there's always a, uh, 
there are a lot of other factors which cause civilizations to collapse, like extreme rainfall or extreme heat or extreme dust. So all of those play a role. And another thing that I found out was uh, if the comet uh, uh, around 3900 BC, the Holocene wet phase came to an end. Uh, the Holocene wet phase was a period of very wet and rainy conditions in the climate of North Africa and the Middle East. And during that time, prior to 4000 BC, uh, the Sahara was a green grassland. And even large parts of the Middle East, which is now a desert, used to be grasslands. And all of a sudden, between 4000 and 3000 BC, uh, these areas turned into arid deserts. And uh, that's how we find them today as well. So something happened between that time, which converted huge la huge areas of grasslands into dry, barren deserts. And my thinking is that maybe that comet also, maybe parts of that comet also landed in northern Af Africa, in some parts of Middle East, maybe in some parts of India, because in India, the thaw turned into a desert. And maybe that that comet was also responsible for the end of the Holocene wet phase, and it and maybe it triggered the onset of the dry conditions and the desertification of the Sahara and the Middle East. So there could have been a lot of other ramifications, uh, but the connection has not yet been studied. The connection between the Burkill impact crater and the end of the Holocene wet phase at 3900 BC has not yet been studied by scientists. But, but I think that, uh, that there's, uh, there's a very good chance that these two are linked. Hmm, fascinating. I want to ask you an esoteric question that maybe only you can answer. When we look at the yugas, there seems to be an energy involved in it, like a level of consciousness. Uh, do you think that these cycles uh, are related to the the, uh, the birth and death of civilizations because perhaps their their consciousness isn't where it should be, and the ones who have more of the up level of consciousness, more open and and um, and accepting, have a longer period of sustainability over the ones that are darker? I mean, uh, if you, I mean, in other words, is there more comet hits during the dark period or, or what? <laughs> Which is, it's, it's like saying if things are bad, people are killing each other, we're going to throw a bunch of co more comments at you. <laughs> I mean, it could be so random, it's just the way it is. It's, you know, if you're a scientist listening to this, you're going, what are you asking the guy that for? But I'm asking you from a more of a metaphysical science. Yeah, what, uh, yeah, the, as per the, as per the yoga cycle, I mean, uh, we basically, uh, there's a descending phase and an ascending phase. So right now we're, right now we're in the descending phase. And what happens in the descending phase is that we go from a state of, uh, mental and spiritual perfection to, uh, the exact opposite of that, which is extreme materialism, extreme obsession with your own selfish desires, and you don't really care about other people or about the environment or anything else, apart from apart from satisfying your own greed and your own. You sound like you're describing the president of the United States. Is that what you're doing? <laughs> a lot of them. A lot of presidents around the world. Oh, okay. Sorry, not just him. All right, a lot yeah. of other presidents too. Okay, go yeah. ahead. So, yeah, so that's the state we are in right now where we are only solely obsessed with the satisfaction of our own selfish desires and we don't really give a damn to anything else. And we uh, and uh, the other thing about the yoga cycle is that in tandem with the decline in uh, human virtues and human morality, the environment itself degrades. So during the golden age, the environment is very abandoned and it provides you with everything that you need. The water and air is very fresh. You don't have any diseases. There are no famines and 
uh, no shortages. And in the Kali Yuga, it's just the opposite because the environment itself has become very degraded and therefore there are diseases and there are famines and there's scarcity, there are shortages. And uh, so, uh, so the question is why? So why does this happen? Why do we have a golden age and why do we have a, a darker age? Uh, uh, I think uh, one of the explanations is that as as human beings, uh, the reason why we why we are on this planet is to evolve our consciousness, to become better persons, to purify our minds, to become more loving and compassionate and charitable. And in order in order to uh, become that, we need to experience both the good side and the bad side, both the plus and the minus. So we need to be able to survive in the Kali Yuga itself. We need to learn the tricks and uh, uh, mechanisms to survive in the Kali Yuga. And uh, we also need to know how to uh, attain to supreme blessedness during the uh, other ages. So right. that's one thing. So it gives you basically the two for the 360 degree experience. That's one way of looking at it. And the other is, I think, uh, different human beings are at different stages of evolution. I mean, there are some people who are at very high levels of evolution, and there are some which are who are at a very low low state of evolution. Now, like everything else, it's a pyramid. So the number of people who are at the lower level is much higher than the number of people at the higher level. And one of the thinking is that during the Sat Yuga or during the Golden Age, uh, the population of the Earth is very small, and, and that's because uh, the Earth right that at that time is vibrating at a very high, high frequency. So only people who are highly enlightened can incarnate on the planet at that time. Whereas, whereas in the Kali Yuga, uh, all the other people can incarnate. These people who are incarnating in the Kali Yuga, they can't incarnate in the Sat Yuga, in the Golden Age, because the vibrations won't match. So this is the only time in the Yuga cycle when these people can come to the Earth and they can have this human experience and they can evolve and be, try to become better. Because the moment we go to the golden age, these people can't come to the earth anymore. Only the really enlightened people can come. So golden age is like uh, the world is filled with Buddhas and uh, Jesus Christ and Confucius and all of them are walking around happily. And, you know, (laughs) (laughs) okay. how can anything go wrong in that kind of a situation? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so you're big on reincarnation, which uh, a lot of people just don't believe in, but... um uh the 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 yugas uh are closely aligned with with uh reincarnation aren't they yeah that's true and i think all the asian societies used to believe in reincarnation it's only uh, when the uh, you know uh, when christianity came up uh, they started uh, in fact christianity also used to believe in reincarnation in the early stages and later on they just uh, removed it uh, from their books but if you look at greek uh, myths uh, they talk about reincarnation in a lot of detail so it was present everywhere in the ancient cultures. And reincarnation makes a lot of sense as well. I mean, uh, the ultimate idea is to improve. If the ultimate idea is to become better people, then you can't do it in one birth. You have to go through many cycles of birth in order to become a better person, in order to become enlightened. And Buddha actually talks about his previous lives. In Buddha, uh, when during his sermons, he actually said that he was born around 24 times. Uh, before he became uh, became a Buddha, became, became uh, before he became enlightened. So it's it's deeply ingrained in the Indian uh, thought. Bibu uh, uh, Dev Mizra, this has been uh, fun talking to you. What do you think? Uh, what what would you like the reader to take away from your article? What what's in, what's important for the reader to take away as a, a concept about the ancient past? 
Uh, well, I think a couple of them. First is uh, uh, the yoga cycles, uh, that fact that uh, there are phases uh, of, uh, there are times when civilizations flourish and there are times when the, the, these same civilizations, they collapse. Uh, and the second is that uh, we need to look at uh, comets and asteroids and threats from outer space uh, as uh, as being responsible for these periodic collapses of human civilization. Uh, right now, we uh, may not be giving enough attention to outer space, uh, to dangers from outer space, but that's one thing we need to probably look out for. Okay, yeah, comets, I don't think we're paying enough attention to them. Or NASA is paying attention to them if they don't want to let us know about them because there's no f- way for them to, to stop a, 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 an impact uh, comet. That's right. And uh, since, uh, and since uh, as per my uh, U.S. cycle model, uh, we are ending the Kali Yoga in 2025, we might see an upswing in uh, asteroid and cometary activities uh, uh, after 2025, sometime after 2025. So we're at the lowest point in the Yugas, right? Right now, and, and in a few years, we're going to start coming back into a, an enlightened period. Is that, is that what you're saying? Uh, a few years from now, we'll end the Kali Yuga and then we'll go into a period of transition. And what happens in this period of transition is that the existing civilizations collapse and then after some time, a new civilization takes uh, place. Uh, so, so we're going to go through a period of collapse which has happened so many times in the past and it's going to happen again. We just don't know when. We just don't know when. It's sometime uh, in the next 300 years. Yeah, you know, it's funny. They talk about the Akashic Records being this cloud uh, of knowledge that hangs above us in some other realm that has all the history of the world, of Earth. Too bad we can't download this more regularly and have it in some books. But, of course, if there's a total calamity and civilization is destroyed, we got to start from scratch. And maybe that's what's supposed to happen, is we're supposed to start from scratch. And that's what the Egyptian priest of Sais had told Solon, the Greek lawgiver, that every time we become civilized, uh, something comes, uh, some pestilence comes from the skies, and then we have to start again like children. Yeah, I mean, that may be the way it goes. It's too bad, though, because it sure drives everyone crazy when you see the remains of a very highly evolved civilization, and there's no documents. Uh, to, to show us what's going on, and we don't have the technology to, to really get down to it. Um, I'm hoping that they can develop scanning technology, like the, like the same technology they used at the Great Pyramid, to determine how the thing worked, what the purpose was, maybe even get to the point where they can determine how old it is. Well, you know, we used to have all those texts, but uh, they have burned down all the libraries. In Alexandria, the library, library was yeah. burned down. In India, so many libraries have been burned down. And then the men of, a lot of knowledge was transmitted orally, but the men of knowledge were also killed off in so many cases. So yeah. we have deliberately, we have deliberately destroyed the information that was available to us. Yeah, uh, I was thinking the same thing about the uh, great Alexandria library that had the history of the world that was destroyed. Um, I don't know. It's it's just I don't. Maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed that, to. That's right. That's why it's the Kaliyo. That's why it's the Kaliyo. It's the age of darkness when we just lose track of who we are and what happened in the past, and we just have to make guesses. Wow, Bibu, this has been uh, fascinating as always. Uh, a great article, uh, and uh, I'm wonderful that Graham was able to post it on his website. Again, I will post it on the. Facebook page, which will automatically be populated to 
earthancients.com. There's a tremendous amount of research. Uh, there are wonderful photographs. And the explanation for the yugas, which for those of you listening, uh, is really a, a sense of Earth's ancient past. Babu, thank you very much. I enjoyed our time. Thanks, Liv. Thanks for having me back in the program. We really got to get a tour together to head out to India. Uh, there are so many amazing ruins, not only in the pyramids and, and structures that are remaining, but uh, there's just a lot of uh, anomalous artifacts that uh, date India's past into the extreme antiquity, you know, tens of thousands, if not more, years. And if you follow the yugas, which I do, uh, but it's hard to have uh, to get mainstream science to to uh, buy in. Um, if you follow the yugas, mankind is you know multi millions of years old, and it just shifts our whole understanding of uh, of our past. So you got to take all this information and kind of uh, digest it and come up with your own conclusions, and that's what we're all about here on Earth Ancients is to give you. Uh, some some data, some some new data, uh, so that uh, you are not questioning what is coming up by the mainstream, which a lot of the times is wrong. So, all right, that's it for today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, please remember to consider a subscription to Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Earth Ancients. All right, take care, and we will talk to you next time. Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.